This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was made possible by Allison O'Halloran, who made a generous monthly donation through Patreon. You too can help support the show through a one-time or monthly donation at HiFiNation.org. This is the last episode of Season 2, and I'm already deep in production for Season 3. I've got some potentially big news about the show coming up during the off-season, so subscribe to the show on your podcast feeds, subscribe to the blog on the website, HiFiNation.org, or follow me on Twitter or Facebook, at HiFiNation. If you're looking for shows to listen to while you wait for the new season, try Very Bad Wizards, where philosopher Tamler Summers and neuroscientist David Pizarro talk about ethics and cognitive science. I've got more recommendations for idea-based shows at the end of the episode. Here it is. This is Jana Lee. I'm Jana Lee Tobias, and I'm a conservative Republican. Jana Lee is gregarious, loquacious, and for some reason breaks into an endearing giggle at the end of sentences, especially when she's talking about liberals. I do a really good Hillary Clinton imitation. You want to hear it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. It's our job to question the President of the United States. <laughs> Every time I... I channel my Hillary, inner Hillary. I, I can't. It hurts my voice. It chokes. It chokes but. you. <laughs> Jana Lee took part in an experiment forcing conservatives and liberals to read nothing but ideologically opposing news feeds for two weeks during the 2016 presidential election. Well, they made me a, a fake profile on Facebook with Hillary Clinton's picture, which killed me. And I think my name was something like. Naftaliers, you know, something liberal sounding. <laughs> I'm Trent Luce, sixth generation rancher from Loop City, Nebraska. Trent Luce is another conservative Republican who took part in the experiment. I, I could not be described anyway other than to the right of conservative. What effects did it have on your own views or your own perceptions of things? Just reading liberal media for like, you know, whatever it was, two weeks. Seemed like two years. Are you sure it was two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> the experiment was to see what would happen if people left their echo chambers. What's an echo chamber? So an echo chamber is normally thought of as a bounded enclosed media space that amplifies certain views and either ignores or insulates from rebuttal other views. That's philosopher Daniel Wodak. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Virginia Tech. Daniel thinks that this experiment that Jana Lee and Trent took part in, it should be all of us, all of the time. It's a kind of mantra right now among popular commentators that one of the reasons for the hyperpartisan divisions in American politics is that everyone is living in an echo chamber. We're told that liberal college kids are unwilling to listen to conservative commentary about race, gender, or sexuality. We're told that conservative media don't present any intelligent liberal commentary on guns, crime, or policing. If you ask either side about echo chambers, you're probably going to hear the charge that the other side lives in an echo chamber, full of fake news and alternative facts. Our side, on the other hand, is where the facts are. So I let in lies and distortions. That's how deep we are right now. What is wrong with echo chambers in your mind? 
they look reasonable if you think about individuals as trying to only read the news that they think is very reliable. And because they agree with one side and not the other, they think that side is far more likely to be right. And I think the way to see what's wrong with that choice is to shift the focus a little bit to what happens in the small chance that the media that they're reading turns out to be really seriously wrong. An analogy here that might be helpful if you're deciding whether or not to buy insurance on your home, you don't have to think there's a very high probability that your home is going to burn down, but you do have to consider what happens if your home does burn down and you didn't buy the insurance. And to my mind, staying in echo chambers puts us in the position where we're at risk of being like the person whose house burnt down and they didn't have insurance. If the media we read turned out to be really systematically wrong on some issues, it's systematically wrong on crime, for instance, and we base our beliefs on the media we read, then we're going to be so systematically misinformed on some issues that we'll end up being like people who are, you know, believe in crazy conspiracy theories, where they're just so disconnected from the truth that it's incredibly hard to get them back on track. If you thought people were bad about echo chambers, they're even worse at buying insurance. We need laws compelling people to do it, even when it's to their advantage. People are just very bad at judging risks and costs. And what are the costs of having bad political beliefs anyway? You have one vote among millions. From Vassar College, you're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Today on the show, we're going to see what happened when Jana Lee and Trent, two ordinary conservative Republicans, decided to enter a liberal echo chamber for two weeks. And we're going to investigate just how bad the echo chamber problem really is in political life. Is it true that Democrats and Republicans live in separate worlds, believing their own set of alternative facts? I'll tell you the answer now. They don't. But that's not necessarily good news. When you actually examine what people really believe, it may even be worse news than we thought. It really depends on what a belief is, especially in politics. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Could you tell me a little bit about your normal, everyday media consumption habits? Like, what is it that you read and watch and so on? I don't watch any. I watch zero television particularly news-oriented television, not not one. In fact, in my house, we don't even have cable. I'm a huge believer in newspapers. Like, I read the Salt Lake Tribune every day. Sometimes I read the Deseret News, and I, I get a lot of emails. I'm a member of so many different conservative groups, and, so, and I read their emails, and then a, a lot of Facebook groups. And there are not sources that I turn to for daily blurps. I, I, I'm more interested in searching the issues. So I would use keywords to search issues that I feel passionate about. And I don't only seek those stories that fit my 
political bias. I try to find those of interest across the board. I wouldn't characterize Trent and Jana Lee as people who are in conservative echo chambers, but they most certainly didn't know what it was like to be inside a liberal media echo chamber before the experiment. Both are highly politically active, Jana Lee in the gun rights movement, Trent in American agribusiness, and they've both expressed a real desire to talk with Democrats and liberals civilly about the issues that they're concerned with. Both also said it's become almost impossible to do that. And that's the context that took them into the experiment. I was basically limited to certain liberal news feeds on a daily basis and would read those stories. And we're talking about the early days of the last presidential election, which made it even more interesting. And um, I don't know if they thought that it would, if you only had access to one side of the spectrum, will people gravitate more towards the middle? If that was the case, it worked just the opposite, because the more I read, the more infuriated I got, and the more conservative I got. I mean, <laughs> seriously, at who they interview and the spin they put on everything, Trump, for example, the, the liberals media would go out and interview rich people for Trump, made it look completely like they're, and, and these I mean, I even hated them. There's these rich Republican ladies in their in their mansions. I hated her, you know, like rich, white, beautiful, face lifted, uh, breast augmentation ladies living in Beverly Hills. Well, and the and these same ladies, it wouldn't be even realistic for gun control, for example, because they they have security guards. These rich, naughty ladies they interviewed in Bel Air or whatever, they have bodyguards and they live in, in gated communities. You know, it, it's people like me living in the suburbs. Uh, trying trying to make a buck, and the government takes over 50% of what we make. I, and, and I'll tell you why I like Trump. Don't go to the extremes and, and try to, to get a story. Because it really moved me. It did move me. I, I really think it was very responsible for taking me from uh, very conservative to pushing the limits of just a full-blown libertarian. I re- now read the Constitution every single time I fly because they carry a little pocket constitution all the time. If you're concerned that echo chambers keep people adhering to their existing views, I've got some news. People who dabble outside of them get even more polarized. Trent and Jana Lee's reactions to the liberal news feed is consistent with over 40 years of research in the psychology of polarized opinion. More often than not, people of any ideology become even more polarized in their political beliefs when you expose them to opposing views and evidence, especially if they're confrontational. The reason is that opposing opinions make you think of more and better reasons as to why you're right. It makes you try hard to detect all the obvious and subtle ways the opposition is wrong. It's hard to see how any of this is unreasonable. That's the bad news. Echo chambers seem to be bad because inside of them people aren't aware of the risk that they're wrong. Exposing yourself to the opposing echo chamber can be even worse, because then you get even more polarized and rigid in your political beliefs. It's no wonder everyone thinks that everyone else lives in their own world, where we can't even agree on the basic facts. And the polling data supports this. An overwhelming majority of Democratic voters, 71%, believe that unemployment had gone down during Obama's presidency, and an overwhelming number of Republicans say it went up. A large majority of Republicans say that Obama reduced deportations of undocumented immigrants, 
a majority of Democrats disagree. And most Democrats believe today that the U.S. economy is not doing well under Trump. Hardly any Republicans think that. These are all facts, verifiable facts. Unemployment and deportation rates, GDP, these are all measured the same way whether you're in a Republican or Democratic administration. And you can check them. Still, you have these different beliefs. There are two go-to explanations for these differences in factual beliefs. One is echo chambers. The other is simple, motivated reasoning. People believe the facts that make their partisan side look good, and the other look bad. I used to think all of this, but then I read a paper that overturned everything I thought about this issue. I'm John Bullock. I'm an associate professor of political science at Northwestern. John Bullock and his colleagues are out to measure the partisan gaps in belief, scientifically. I gave you some poll numbers. The first step is to look at poll numbers across larger samples, across a longer span of time, across a larger number of questions. It turns out that when you think about specific issues and you get Democrats and Republicans to say where on a continuum they fall with respect to abortion, let's say, or taxation, they are distinct from each other, but they're not poles apart. The extent of polarization with respect to issue attitudes along party lines in the United States has been exaggerated. Next, John looked at beliefs in facts. What I'll call objective conditions. These are objectively measurable facts that all policymakers use as data points. I'm talking about growth in the economy, change in economic indicators, casualties in war, changes in economic inequality. So, for example, when a Democratic president is in the White House, Republicans are systematically more likely to say that inflation has gone up, that the deficit has gone up, that all of the economic indicators are in the wrong direction, and vice versa when a Republican is in the White House. On average, it turns out, Democrats and Republicans are separated by about 12 percentage points, averaging over all of these factual questions. This is what 12% means. A recent poll asked whether you think Donald Trump is a liar. Democrats and Republicans are 50 points apart on that poll. 76% of Democrats say he is, whereas only 18% of Republicans say the same. If you take all factual questions across all domains and looked at the median, it's 12. So some facts partisans are very far apart on, and some not at all. Contextualize that number. You said it's not that big? I mean, it sounds 12 percentage can be big in some other context. Absolutely. Uh, and, and indeed, if I, I often run studies and I would be scared to find a 12 percentage point effect because it would mean I did something wrong because that effect is just too big. Having said that, I believe that certainly in popular discussions of politics and even in academic discussions of politics, there's a misperception that differences in factual beliefs of this sort are much greater than they actually are. I think that many political scientists would say that the average differences on these questions are closer to 50 percentage points than 12 percentage points. And that's just not the case. We have this picture that Republicans li live in this universe where they're constantly under physical threat from immigrants and, and terrorists, and they believe that the risk of um, Islamic terror is like, you know, really high, and that during Obama, the economy was getting worse and worse. Whereas and Democrats under tr Trump might be living in this world where there's going to be a nuclear holocaust within the next you know three years, and so on and so forth. That's the picture that we get. You're telling me that that's exaggerated? 
I am telling you that as a general matter, that's exaggerated. There are millions of people who believe just the things that you've mentioned, of course. But as a general matter, there's no question that it's exaggerated. Many people, for example, get their news not just from partisan sources of one stripe, but from partisan sources of another. Many people who listen to Fox News will also listen to CNN. This pattern seems to be changing. It does seem that media consumption patterns are becoming somewhat more polarized. But the idea that most Republicans are listening to Fox News and listening exclusively to Fox News unless they also go to Breitbart is a total fiction. But that's only the first part of the study. John Bullock was highly skeptical of the survey data. For the most part, these differences in Democrats and Republicans' answers to survey questions were just taken at face value as indications of their sincere beliefs. We weren't so sure that this was the case. Think about why people might not report their sincere beliefs to a pollster who was calling them asking them about their beliefs. John thought maybe they do know the facts. They're just lying to make their side look good or to make the other side look bad. Partisan cheerleading. So John devised a way to try to get people to answer sincerely. And so what we did was give people small incentives to answer correctly. There's precedence for this method in the psychology literature. If you get people to try to defend themselves in the face of confrontational counter-evidence, people become more polarized. If you instead incentivize people with money for getting the answer right, or if you make it so that a group of people working on a project is relying on you to get a right answer, people are more likely to be right rather than be defensive. And that's what John did for political beliefs. We were using questions that had verifiable answers. Questions about inflation, questions about the deficit, questions about how many people had died in certain wars. He said of factual questions that equally made Democrats look good and Republicans look bad, and Republicans look good and Democrats look bad. And what we found is that when we gave people truly trivial amounts of money, in some cases as little as two and a half cents, to give a correct answer, as opposed to the answer that they would give under ordinary survey conditions, we could get very large differences in responses. Paying people as little as two and a half cents was able to cut that gap almost in half. That's six points. Six. Telling people you're going to get a few cents for getting the right answer. Shrank the average partisan gap in beliefs about facts to six points. And remember, the right answer to the questions equally made Republican and Democratic administrations look good. So people weren't just answering in a way that they think pleased the liberal researchers. And John wasn't finished yet. It's widely accepted in political science that most people don't know much about politics. People are very busy. There's a lot going on in their lives. Many people under ordinary survey conditions who do not know the answers to factual questions will nevertheless give the answers to factual questions. This phenomenon can exaggerate the extent of partisan differences in factual beliefs. Because if I do not know an answer, I can still give an answer that will favor my party or make the other party look bad. And so this process can make it seem as though partisans are more divided with respect to beliefs than they really are. Because in fact, so much of the apparent divide is driven by people who do not have sincere beliefs one way or the other. What we found further, and was a little bit gratifying, is that although many people don't know the answer, and it's hard to argue that's a good thing, 
these people tend to know that they don't know the answers. The way that we found this was to offer people a certain amount of money for giving the correct answer, but a, a smaller amount of money simply to admit that they don't know. When John incentivized people to actually say, I don't know, when they didn't know, rather than give an answer for cheerleading, the partisan gap shrank even more. And then he upped the stakes. We do find in one condition in one of our studies that when we offer a big amount, a dollar for each correct answer, the partisan gap disappears entirely. This doesn't mean that everybody's answering these questions correctly, but it means that on average, there's no difference between Democrats and Republicans when you offer them a dollar for the correct answer. John Bullock's finding is a statistical one, not a categorical one. That means that there are highly partisan people who do deny basic verifiable facts. When those facts make their party look bad, there are probably a lot of them. But averaged over the population, John Bullock's conclusion is that most of the gap is the result of inauthentic answers, partisan cheerleading, rather than actual beliefs in different facts. So is this good news or bad news? When we come back, a little analysis and a little philosophy, as we try to figure out what it means to ask what people really believe about politics, when Hi-Fi Nation continues. Philosophy is the search for truth, but sometimes that truth is best revealed through fiction. The Great Courses Plus has a wonderful new course that explores this called Sci-Fi, Science Fiction as Philosophy. The course made me realize how many of my favorite sci-fi films and TV shows connect directly with philosophical issues I've been studying for a long time. The course goes through some of my favorite films like Inception, The Matrix, Dark City, and some of my favorite TV shows like Doctor Who, Westworld, and Black Mirror, Handmaid's Tale. It extracts from them some of the most interesting philosophical questions about time, personal identity, and social justice. This is just one of the many fantastic courses that you can enjoy with The Great Courses Plus. Get unlimited access to learn about anything from award-winning experts. Watch or listen to lectures anytime with The Great Courses Plus app. Right now, my listeners can enjoy a special free month of The Great Courses Plus, but to get this limited-time offer, you have to sign up at my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash hi-fi. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash hi-fi. H-I-P-H-I. I've long had this faith that people were fundamentally reasonable. When they know the facts, they'll come to the right decision. And that's what I thought Bullock's paper meant. You see, people aren't deluded about facts. There's a very normal explanation, and that's actually optimistic because they can be informed about facts in a way that if they're deluded, they can't be informed about facts because they're delusional. Oh, what you have said is true. The typical reading of the work that I've done is a, a very optimistic reading. The ironic thing is that I myself tend to have a pretty dour view, a pessimistic view. Yes, the differences between Democrats and Republicans with respect to factual beliefs are smaller than many imagine. On the other hand, we have very tentative evidence suggesting that factual beliefs may also 
matter less to people's vote choice than most political scientists and most others imagine. This is an emerging view coming out of political science research in American politics. That partisan cheerleading. It's not just cheerleading for pollsters. The whole pattern of political behavior, from voting to donating, volunteering, and advocacy, it all seems to rest on party allegiance and not facts. Like what a political party does in terms of taxes, the economy, wars. Allegiance trumps belief in facts, and it's not even close. John seems to agree with this emerging view. Finding out that there's no average difference in factual beliefs between partisans isn't an opportunity to educate people about facts. It's evidence that facts don't matter. We're both educators in a way. When I encounter an individual and I want to change their mind or persuade them, one thing I can do is offer them facts. And that's my natural reaction because of the kind of person that I am and the, and the vision that I have of the right thing to do. You give them some statistics and they'll come around. Or is that misguided? I suspect that it is misguided. The mainstream view on this point is probably the correct view, which is simply that exposing people to a set of facts is, by and large, not a very good way to persuade them. John Bullock's studies show that the gap we thought we had, the gap between Democrats and Republicans in factual beliefs, is an illusion created by another gap, the gap between what people really believe and what they want everyone else to think they believe. And that's an interesting distinction, because I'm starting to think that it's a distinction without a difference. I'm Eric Schwitzgabel, and I'm a professor of philosophy at University of California, Riverside. I need to tell you about some philosophical theories of belief. One view of belief is that there are these things inside a secret compartment in your mind. You, in your heart of hearts, know what's in there. When you're talking or acting, you could be telling us what's in that compartment, or you might just be choosing to mislead us. But what matters is what's in the secret compartment and not what you say or do. We'll call this view intellectualism. It's the view that if you intellectually endorse something, if you feel sincere when you say it, if you think you believe it, then you believe it. And it kind of doesn't really matter outside of those questions, how you're disposed to act. Part of the view is that you know what you believe. You just have to look into your own compartment. But there is another view of belief. It says that what you really believe comes out in what you do. There's no secret compartment. If you act like you believe it, look like you believe it, and talk like you believe it, then you believe it. And people can't just peek into themselves to know what they believe. They're just acting and reacting. The actions themselves determine what they believe. Right, so another kind of case that I've thought about a lot is someone who says, I believe that women and men are equally intelligent, and yet is pretty sexist, maybe, without realizing it in their day-to-day -day behavior. To believe that women and men are intellectually equal really is to treat women and men equally with respect to matters of intelligence. And you might say that you believe it and feel sincere and not really be lying. But if you don't act that way in a consistent manner, it's not quite right to say that you believe that. The philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel is someone who likes this action-based account of belief. I like it too. 
Beliefs are the way people act. More precisely, beliefs are the way people are disposed to act. Right, so a disposition is a tendency to do something or to react in a certain way. Salt is disposed to dissolve in water. What you mean is if you put salt in a certain situation, that is, if you drop it in water, it's apt to dissolve. If you say that a statue is breakable or fragile, you're saying that, well, in certain kinds of situations, it's liable to break. Likewise, we can say of people that they have dispositions. If you're disposed to act like you're a sexist, then you have sexist beliefs, whether you think or know so in your heart of hearts. What it is to believe something, it's to be disposed to act and react characteristically of a believer in that thing. Eric Schwitzgable thinks we know by common sense which actions go with what beliefs. If your mom is disposed to go to the chicken coop when there aren't any eggs in the fridge, then it means she believes that there are eggs back there. And it's not just actions that make up what you believe. There's also... What I call phenomenal dispositions, or dispositions to have certain kinds of conscious experiences. What would surprise you? What wouldn't surprise you? What would scare you or fill you with anticipation? These dispositions say a lot about what you believe, too. If someone is disposed to be really surprised if he found out that a woman was smart, we know by common sense what that says about his beliefs. And then there are what I call cognitive dispositions. Which are the kind of dispositions that have to do with other beliefs. Suppose you're disposed to believe Trump, or Hillary, or Fox News, or CNN, or none of the above. These dispositions show that you believe these sources are trustworthy. What you believe is a combination of what else you're disposed to believe, what you're disposed to do, and what you're disposed to feel. And there's our philosophical theory of belief. How does it apply to partisan differences? Well, the interesting cases of belief are when people sometimes act like they believe something and sometimes act like they don't, like the implicit sexist. He's all talk about equality, but then is really surprised when he comes across a smart woman. He has a mixed profile of dispositions. He's not kind of across the board the same on all of these questions. So in that case, it becomes not quite right to say that he believes women and men are equally intelligent, not quite right to say that he fails to believe that. It's an in-between, mixed-up, muddy case where you have to go and describe how things splinter differently. Someone who acts sometimes like he believes something, but sometimes like he doesn't, isn't necessarily being contradictory or dishonest on Schwitzgabel's view. It's just a normal feature of what he calls in-between believing. So one analogy that I use for this is personality. You can imagine someone who's really extroverted in some ways and really introverted in others, right? So this person, let's say on weekends, is a really extroverted, but at work is suddenly clams up and becomes a total introvert. Do you want to say this person really is extroverted or this person really is not extroverted or introverted? It seems like the better thing to say is, well, this person's kind of in between, in some ways extroverted, in some ways introverted. Here's a possibility. Maybe it's not right to say that people secretly have some beliefs, but openly act like they have other ones. There's no secret chamber. If John Bullock, armed with the facts, offers people money for the right answers, and they turn out to say different things than when they responded to a pollster, Maybe both contexts tell us what the person really believes. Let's use a very real example. Some very recent polling data from public policy polling. 
They asked Democrats, Republicans, and independents which racial group faces the most discrimination in America. There's a 30-point gap in responses. Democrats say it's African Americans. Republicans say it's white people. And when asked which religious group faces most discrimination, there's a 40-point gap. Republicans say it's Christians. 70% of Democrats say it's Muslims. By the way, if you look at hate crime statistics against religious groups, it's not even close. It's Jews. And that's what partisans say to pollsters. It's what they want everyone to think they believe. Now, what is the difference between that and what they truly believe? Imagine someone came along armed with hate crime statistics and employment discrimination statistics and offered people a dollar if they got the right answer, 49 cents if they say they didn't know. And then the gap disappears, just like in John Bullock's studies. What's the right interpretation? For John Bullock, there's an economic interpretation. It rests on the secret compartment theory of belief. There's a positive benefit to cheerleading. It makes your political party look unified and coherent. And there's no cost to misleading a pollster about what's in your secret compartment. But the money changes something. It introduces a benefit for revealing what's in your secret compartment and ensures a cost to lying. So on this view, once someone finds the right dollar amount that makes the truth worth more than cheerleading, you'll get people to be honest about what's in their secret compartment. Here's the other interpretation, the philosophical one, based on the dispositional, action-based view of belief. I think people have in-between beliefs typically on political issues. And this manifests by giving different answers in different contexts. In the context of being asked a question by a pollster in one way versus the context of being asked a question by a pollster in another way in versus the context of talking with your Republican friends versus the context of talking with your Democratic friends, different things can come out of your mouth and they can all feel sincere like you're not lying, but there doesn't have to be a single here's the real thing underneath such that either I'm definitely cheerleading or I definitely really believe it. Schwitzgebel isn't saying people are moderate or in the middle about their political beliefs. He's also not saying that people are unsure about them. He's saying that when someone says that white Christians face the most discrimination in America, he's displaying only one action consistent with him believing it. Under another condition, the person might not say the same thing. People are disposed to say different things depending on what's at stake. Now, why does the one context, the context where a little money is at stake, the one that reveals what people really believe, what about all the other contexts in which people actively say and then vote and then act on the basis of what they want everyone else to say they believe? Don't any of those contexts count at all for determining what people really believe? Add to that the person's other dispositions, like when do they feel surprised when they hear of a hate crime? Who do they give a break to when they have to hire someone? If you believe in the action-based view of belief, every single action counts as determining what people believe. That's what a belief is. It's made up of every single one of your actions. 
And so here's an alternative account of what's happening with partisan beliefs and facts. The fact that partisans are disposed to say and vote on the basis of claims that make their party look good counts as a way of believing in those claims. When someone like John Bullock shows up with money to incentivize people to state the truth, they're being introverted believers a bit more skeptical when money's at stake because it's safer for them just to say they don't know. And I gotta say, I'm tempted by this explanation because I don't want to let people off the hook for their actions. What good is a secret compartment if nothing you do is consistent with what's in it? But then John Bullock pointed out yet another study, one that changed my mind yet again. Remember in the first week of the Trump presidency? There was a controversy over how many people attended Trump's inauguration. The Washington Post had printed two aerial photos of the mall in D.C., side by side, one of Trump's inauguration and one of Obama's. The Trump administration, for a few days, claimed that Trump's inaugurations had more people in attendance than Obama's. But the aerial photos showed something far different. Anyway, a researcher named Brian Schaffner of UMass Amherst decided to do his own study. If you simply show people two pictures of crowds right after the inauguration, and you ask which picture has more people in it, you don't even mention Trump or Obama, 15% of Republicans will point to the picture that has fewer people and will say that's the picture that has more people. This wasn't a study to make Republicans look bad. It was an attempt at measuring how much answers to politically relevant questions were motivated completely by partisan cheerleading rather than sincere belief. So they used a perceptual belief, a belief you acquire directly from your senses, where on any view, a person should be believing directly what's in front of them. I think it's very clear that at least 15% of people knew the right answer to a certainty and were giving the wrong answer. Moreover, that 15% is probably an underestimate, almost certainly an underestimate, of the proportion who would have responded insincerely because many people, when this study was done, had not yet heard about the controversy over inauguration crowd size. As a philosopher, could I imagine a world in which they are literally deluded? I've thought about that possibility. Sure, I'll bet you can imagine it. We we both may have exceptional powers of imagination. I just don't think it's a very likely answer that people are so deluded by their partisanship that it is in some sense affecting their vision or their counting ability when the picture's right in front of them. John's right. It can't be that 15% of people should count as in-between believing that Trump's inauguration had more people in it, contrary to their own eyes. When you put people in a position that makes their group or leader look bad, at least 15% of people will do any low-cost thing they can to save a little face, make themselves and their leader look better. What would you expect them to do? The study makes pretty clear that for a significant number of people, political questions and answers are not motivated by truth, but by face and honor. And why shouldn't political discussions operate this way? How many people are actual policymakers who need the facts to make a decision? The stakes for any ordinary political discussion are almost always social. Who looks smarter, more virtuous, a better person, a better arguer? Giving people money for the right answer flips them out of this way of thinking. 
But I don't think John Bullock's economic interpretation is quite right. I don't think money is buying people out of partisan cheerleading. I think that if you told people that it's a trivia game, they don't get any money, but they get 10 points for the right answer, and four points if they don't know, you'll probably get similar results. So what's happening? I think the game makes your honor and your face, your temporary social standing and self-worth, depend on something other than your party allegiance and defending the party line. Now it all depends on getting points or getting money. People are still pursuing face, honor, self-worth. You've just switched what they need to get it. By the way, it's all about moral worth and social standing. What's a Republican's moral worth and social standing? What's a Democrat's? That's the source of the true partisan gap in America. The gap that isn't exaggerated, that isn't subject to false reports of insincere beliefs. How would you describe the world that liberals inhabit? I actually describe that world often because we see daily college and high school age demographics in the United States who speak favorably of socialism and even now communism. And throughout the history of the world, socialism and communism have been the most ruthless killers of human life. So, so, so you think that the, the liberal media that, that liberals are only consuming is presenting a world that's favorable to socialism and communism? Absolutely, I do. How would you describe the world that liberals inhabit? If I was a liberal and that's all I read was liberal news, I would hate conservatism. I'd want to go kill them probably. I mean, <laughs> seriously, I, they would look like, and, and just it's just like who they interview and the spin they put on everything. I think that they are continually told and educated to think about a conservative as someone who cares about profits above all else, that earth doesn't matter, that human life doesn't matter, that it's only about profitability and how can I achieve a profit whether I rape, pillage, and plunder the earth or not. And nothing could be further from the truth. They think that we're selfish. They think that we're gun nuts. Like, look at me right now. I've got a gun in my sock. I've got a gun, a bra holster, a, a thigh holster. You know, I've got guns laying all around. I go shoot a squirrel off my porch for dinner, which is completely false. They think that we're selfish, that we don't want to help people, help the poor. I also think, and I don't know how far you want to go into this, that a lot of what I see and deal with is an anti-Christian movement. Is an anti-Christian movement. Now, why do you say that? Fundamentally, when I do have a conversation with somebody that I disagree on, it comes down to that I believe in the Bible and I believe in God's creation, and they do not. Where the real action seems to lie so far as partisan polarization is concerned, it's with how people literally feel about ordinary members of the other party. Here it seems that there are large and increasing gaps. Democrats are now much more likely than they were 40 years ago to say that Republicans are less intelligent, less honest, more selfish. Republicans are also uh, likely and more likely than before to say the exact same things about Democrats. So this is where the largest differences lie, I think. The only sincere partisan beliefs we can gather for sure is that people hate each other and know that they hate each other and use the hate of each other as even more reason to hate each other. That's not a context where people are motivated by the right incentives to believe in facts. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
We know from psychology what conditions make facts matter to people and what conditions reduce polarization. It's not a law of nature that our political and media spaces tap into our darker dispositions. We can change them if we wanted to. Bonus content for this episode is available at the show page at hifination.org. Listen to me and philosopher Daniel Wodak talk about echo chambers and media consumption. From the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia, where I'm in production for season three, thanks to everyone who helped support Hi-Fi Nation this really challenging second season. This episode was made possible by the very generous Patreon donors James Kropcho, Shin Matik, Eileen Chow, and Jonathan Guaret. Please consider supporting Hi-Fi Nation through a one-time or monthly donation at the website, hifination.org. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.